Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Jonah McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's podcast, we bring you news of a Premier League star targeted by European giants Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. Dani Alves is set to stay in Paris, but what's the future for PSG's beleaguered coach Thomas Tuchel? And Barcelona versus Liverpool analysis, we ask did Jurgen Klopp fail to get his tactical ducks in a row? Okay, we're going to start off as we always like to with a great newsline and Ian has news about Wilfred Zaha and two huge, huge clubs that are looking at this player for next season. Ian, who are they? Well, uh, the two clubs are Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid, uh, Johnny. Um, This uh, kind of uh, attraction, if you like, to young English players, especially wingers, as we've seen with the case of Jadon Sancho in Germany, um, is continuing. Um, The player himself... Uh, gave an interview, which I believe went down um, like a bucket of cold sick at um, uh, Crystal Palace, in which he said 10 days ago that he'd like to play Champions League football. He knows that that's highly unlikely um, if he stays at Selhurst Park, despite the fact he signed a new five-year contract at the beginning of this season. Now, um, from what my contacts are telling me, um, there is uh, definitely interest from Atletico Madrid in the player. Uh, they have watched him on at least three occasions in the past two months, um, sent uh, scout and sporting director to uh, to see him play and value him around um, 50 million euros. What I um, am told is that Crystal Palace uh, official um, stance on this is that he's not for sale at any price. Uh, however, uh, Roy Hodgson has recently been asked about this um, and gave the normal manager soliloquy of how well, he's under contract and we hope he's here for uh, you know many years to come. He's a Palace fan, etc., etc. Um, but then, obviously, adding the caveat of, but you never know what might happen. Um, I think we probably do know what's going to happen in this case, and that is that the interest in Zaha will increase over the course of this next summer transfer window, and that <clears throat> the fees being banded around, if they reach around 70 million euros, then Palace will be tempted to cash in. The interest on Bayern Munich is complex, partly because of a current Atletico Madrid player. Antoine Griezmann, um, transfer window's favourite scaredy cat, the guy who um, you know could have ruled the world with Barcelona and Manchester United, had he chosen to leave Atletico uh, in either of the last two summer transfer windows, has been making a lot of noise and indeed <clears throat> is looking for a way out um, of Atletico Madrid. And Bayern Munich have a, a vested interest and indeed have noted officially their interest in Griezmann with Atletico. Now, obviously, they wouldn't be buying Griezmann and Zaha, but in Bayern's case, as we all recognise and know, they will be losing their two wingers of the past, well, it feels like 100 years, but it's just the last 10, Aryan Robben <clears throat> uh, being one of them, excuse me, 
And so therefore they will look to replace um, with quality on, on both sides. And um, in doing so, um, have an interest in Griezmann and in Zaha. So uh, if they get Griezmann, clearly their interest in Zaha will dwindle. But of course, if Griezmann leaves for Bayern, then what we're looking about in terms of catalyst and transfer merry-go-round means that Atletico would look to replace Griezmann with Zaha. So um, I would say that we could look out and, and watch out and, and we will obviously bring you news first here um, that uh, in terms of any progress in terms of bids for Zaha, which I believe there's not been a bid as yet, um, <clears throat> but I am told the player is interested in leaving. I'm just not sure, Duncan, that um, given his rather um, infamous little sojourn to Manchester, um, that necessarily he's he would choose to leave to go abroad, given that um, he didn't succeed at United and then came back to London. Yeah, I think that's that would be my first response to all of this. Um, I remember having a conversation with a contact at Crystal Palace last summer when Zaha's future was very much in question and there was there was talk about one of the top Premier League clubs taking him um, and asking him what he thought Zaha would do and he, he said, look, Zaha is a real homeboy. Um, he struggled to live in Manchester. He struggled with the life there. He, he is a, he's a Londoner um, and I cannot really see him moving away from London. So um, if he is going to change clubs, then expect it to be him targeting something like Chelsea or Arsenal um, rather than one of the Manchester clubs. And I mean, a, a move overseas wasn't even under discussion at that stage. As you point out, he ended up signing a very lucrative new contract at Crystal Palace instead. Best paid player at the club. Very important to the way they play, um, which I think is another question mark I, I have about him. Is he's he's essentially a maverick. He's um, you have that extremely well disciplined um, and organised, a classic Roy Hodgson setup where he, as a manager, always manages to improve the results of teams um, beyond their basic capabilities um, when they're kind of um, lower to mid-level teams um, and gets them to stop other teams from scoring and the ability to score goals when they do have their chances and get the kind of results where they've had, in, for example, in beating Manchester City this season, um, where they really shouldn't have any uh, real perspective of, of beating a club like that. And Zaha fits into that because the rest of the team is so well organised, um, you can kind of just stick him up top and let him do his work on the ball, let him be, make his decisions and try and score goals and create things by himself. And he has that combination of very good technical skills with a great physique. Um, so he's capable of, of, um, of beating defenders physically, uh, not just with his pace, but, but actually with uh, muscle power um, to get his way into goal and, uh, and, to, and to score chances. And I think he, Crystal Palace is ideal for him. I think if you were to choose a, a Premier League, a top Premier League club to move to, I think Chelsea again is is a good fit here because you could put him on top of that organisational system they have, and and of course there are um, in there's a great likelihood that they lose their maverick and their key creator and goal scorer um, Eden Hazard this summer, so 
while in no way would I say that Zaha is a like-for-like like, uh, replacement, and I don't think Zaha, even placed in a Chelsea team, is going to ever produce the numbers that, um, that Eden Hazard can produce, he would at least um, give you a reasonable percentage of them and, and be a kind of approximation of, of what Hazard is, and, and add a physicality that obviously Hazard doesn't have. So. I think that's what, what we, we, sh we should be watching is how this develops um, in terms of whether um, Zaha can hook in one of the top Premier League clubs, um, a, a Champions League contender. And, you know, it has to be noted that there's no guarantee that Chelsea um, or Arsenal or even Manchester United will be in the Champions League um, for next season. But whether he can hook in one of those, get himself a pay rise and... Uh, and have that possibility of winning trophies, which is something that he's obviously identified as, as wanting to do in this um, latter stage of his career, because he's 26 now, so this is kind of the moment um, if he is going to move to a top-tier club for him to do it. And does it no harm, obviously, Duncan, in terms of the uh, auction market of having this interest from both um, one of the biggest clubs in Spain and also the biggest club in Germany? So uh, that in itself makes him more desirable to other clubs. Now, the club that we, we haven't mentioned here is Tottenham, of course, who have been linked to him uh, in the course of the last sort of eight or nine months. Um, although uh, Spurs uh, are not in a habit of spending the kind of money you know that um, Palace would be looking for in terms of uh, recruiting him. But that's not to say that, you know, uh, the summer ahead, Spurs might not lose um, one of their bigger players and, and therefore have the budget to spend money to replace. So um, the player I'm thinking of right now is Christian Eriksen, who again has been heavily linked to Real Madrid in um, the Spanish sporting press this morning. Um, and I think that's something that we should take seriously because um, obviously they have a, a vacancy there, I think, with, um, ironically again, the ex-Spurs midfielder Luka Modric getting towards the uh, the twilight of his career and Tony Cruz looking more and more like a player who is tired of playing in the Liga and therefore they need someone to orchestrate their creativity in midfield. So again, um, that could be part of a, a catalyst move with regards to how things work out at Tottenham this summer, never mind um, Chelsea or even Arsenal. Is it one of the great sliding doors moments in terms of footballers' careers, Ian? That notion that Zaha went to Manchester United. It was the last signing of Sir Alex Ferguson's career. He was a young man. And he's never quite, even though we're talking about great, great clubs, got to the level again in his career where he would be considered for perhaps an elite club like United or a Real Madrid. Um, I take your point, Johnny. I think it's a, a moot one with regards to Zaha. He clearly has the talent and he clearly has the physique, as Duncan has pointed out, to play and to damage elite opponents and we've seen that um, specifically I think in uh, you know games against Manchester City um, and uh, Manchester United and Chelsea this season where he's been outstanding um, so it's obvious the case that you could say that you know he has I don't want to say potential because he's 26 he has the ability to play at an elite level if he applies himself and if um, emotionally and mentally he can adapt to a different environment but that clearly wasn't the case for him as a younger man when he went to Manchester United but you can say that of a lot of players who went to Old Trafford and, and didn't succeed or have not indeed 
it fulfilled expectations. So um, coming home, inverted comms for him to Palace, was an easy option. And people have said, oh, he took the easy way out by going back to you know his hometown club, etc., etc. But I, I, I agree with, with Duncan in the sense that a move to a different stroke, bigger London club would probably be his ideal. Um, and we may well yet see him um, produce the kind of performances on a consistent basis that he's been doing for Palace, um, not sporadically, but certainly um, with effect um, when he does um, feel like in the mood. So, I, look, I, I think with Zaha, I would very much doubt that he will be at Crystal Palace next season. I think that his stock is high. Um, the price is relatively um, va- valid or, va- you know, it's value for what you're getting. And um, again, I'll, I like to go back to, as you know, Gilfie Sigurdsson costing 50 million, Richarlison costing 50 million. If you had to pay 50 million for Zaha, I think you would be probably getting value for money and certainly probably more of a goal scoring stroke creative uh, in terms of goal chances player than you would get from the two I mentioned who are currently at Everton. Okay, well, we're going to move on now to some news from Duncan. And uh, he's got something from the heart of Paris Saint-Germain, where a legendary right-back looks like he's going to stay at the club. I might be giving it away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you might well just finish it, Johnny. (laughs) Danny Alves! Yes, Danny Alves. We talked about him a couple of months ago that he was uh, weighing up his options in terms of what he did next in his career, has always had a, a desire to play in the Premier League, spoken about it on many, many occasions, uh, came within hours um, on his wedding day of being a Manchester City player uh, and instead chose to go to Paris Saint-Germain after um, Neymar um, made him a key component of his transfer to Paris Saint-Germain. He's been discussing a new contract there and as we said on the, on the, on the transfer window, one of his motivations for staying at Paris is he wants to get them to a Champions League final. Um, He feels that he hasn't uh, delivered um, that on that to Paris. Um, Not, I think, because of his own failings as a player, but just uh, of the circumstances the team he's been playing in. But every other club um, he's been at, he's been to a European final, at least, and won many of them. And Obviously, that is the great goal of Qatar um, and why they own the club and um, wants to be involved in that. And what I'm told is they have everything agreed um, between his agent and the club on a a one plus one year extension. And it's just waiting for Danny to give the final um, say so and sign that contract. And he will be there um, for next season's campaign as well. One of the enduring um, great players of the modern era, Alves, and so no coincidence, nor indeed um, it's very well deserved in terms of a new contract for for him. Remember, he had many options indeed, as Duncan reported. um, He had agreed to join Manchester City until Neymar's intervention uh, at PSG. So um, with Alves, and of course we discussed on on the transfer window, didn't we, that his ex-wife is also his agent, which is something we love because we're a little bit like that in terms of our quirkiness on the transfer window. So Let's uh, not get into your love life, Ian, for God's sake. It's not my love life, it's Danny Alves's. I love the fact that he's, his, his ex-wife is getting her um, 
her alimony through Danny's commission payments. I mean, uh-huh. listen, in terms of a, in terms of a tax arrangement, Johnny, and, and until you've been divorced, that is a classic setup, mate. <laughs> Hopefully, I never have to find out about that. Uh, I, well, I, I, I genuinely don't wish that upon you or any of our listeners. <laughs> Well, listen, while we're on the subject of PSG, Duncan, um, what on earth is going on with Thomas Tuchel there? He seems to have uh, had a bit of a nightmare in recent weeks. And uh, it seemed that there was a sense he would hang around for another couple of years, perhaps, in Paris. But perhaps not the case now. Yeah, I think um, I think that game against Manchester United has affected him. He saw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer coming out um, with that um, incredible win. Uh, in Paris, and thought I wanted a bit of that, and and he's he's, he's almost there because his last uh, seven games as PSG manager, he's won just one of them, uh, lost three um, in normal time, lost lost the uh, the French Cup final uh, on penalties uh, at the weekend, having been two 0 up against Stadron, um, who I forget what the the multiple is in terms of PSG's revenue to Ron, but it, it's utterly embarrassing for. Um, for Tuchel, um, the, the bizarre thing about this is he had convinced uh, Qatar to keep him as coach and uh, a, a new contract which um, uh, significantly improves his salary uh, had been agreed between all parties. Um, I believe it's actually signed and has been signed and they were waiting um, I think for the end of the, uh, you know, a, a positive end to the French campaign, i.e., winning the title and and the French Cup, for to announce it, they haven't actually announced it, um, which has led to all kinds of speculation about whether his um, his his position there is in doubt again. And certainly, there are a lot of top level managers hoping that his position will be in doubt and that Qatar will change their mind and dismiss him but you have to say he's doing doing the best he can to shoot himself in the foot because it's not just the results it's some of the the statements he's been making um criticizing uh Kylian Mbappe who's his best player um I think very importantly using as an excuse um for the recent results and he, he has had a limited squad to work with um the absence of players like um, Adrian Rabio who has refused to sign a new contract at uh, Paris Saint-Germain and who Tuchel was instructed not to play um, as a punishment to Rabiot um, for not uh, not being prepared to uh, improve and extend his terms at Paris and wanting to go elsewhere. Now, if you want to talk about a red rag to a bull, I think that is a great example of it because if um, when you have all-powerful owners who have made a um, strategic decision um, albeit one that's probably based primarily on pride, to make an example of a player who refuses to sign a new contract at the club. Um, and then you question that decision or use that decision as an excuse for your uh, extremely poor performances on the field, then you're giving them a chance to change their mind. Um, I was talking to contacts um, very familiar familiar with what's happening at PSG last night and was asking about this and uh, was told as far as they're concerned um, Tuchel still has the support of the Emir and he will remain in place for next season but pay attention to the situation because we know what these we know what the people 
in Qatar are like. We know how quickly they change their mind. And the things Tuchel are doing is certainly giving them pause for thought as to whether he is the right person to continue with next season. Well, fascinating stuff on PSG there, um, but we can't continue much longer in this podcast without referring back to Wednesday's fascinating encounter between Barcelona and Liverpool. The Catalans obviously winning the game 3-0 after a pretty stupendous performance by Lionel Messi, but Liverpool had some good chances in the game and played not too bad themselves. This is just me covering up the fact that, of course, I did indeed tip Liverpool but let's not go any further into that. Not, come on, come on, Johnny. Let's let's get this right. You didn't tip Liverpool. You said they <laughs> he gave com- us the score as well. Comfortably win this tie, I believe. Three one, I believe you said, Mister Mister McFarlane bookie. I, I don't recall any of this. To be honest, I just remember tipping them in the tabloid parlance. But never, never mind about any of that. What did we make of this game? Were uh, Liverpool unlucky or were Barcelona worthy winners? I don't think we see Liverpool unlucky because a four a three 0 scoreline um, would make a mockery of that. Um, I think what happened was that Liverpool managed the game in in. Um, large sections very well they attacked and pressed Barcelona stopped Barcelona from playing um, their normal game for large sections of the match the statistics show that Liverpool enjoyed 52% of possession in the 96 minutes that, that, that the match was played over which for any team playing in Camp Nou is unheard not unheard of but incredible <clears throat> for um to deprive Barcelona of the majority of the ball. However, Barcelona were clever. This is a this is a <laughs> it's a competition, it's a a contest in which they are extremely well rehearsed, well drilled, and they know what to do. And my take on it in the end, while I was very impressed by the way Liverpool played, was that Barcelona were just simply more intelligent on the night. They waited for Liverpool to tire. And then that's when they struck. And they, the goals that came um, were ones which are a classic Barcelona counter-attacking. I mean, the first one for sure, obviously, which came um, early on, um, was a brilliant cross from Jordi Alba into Luis Suarez, whose finish was you know, what you'd expect. But um, in terms of how Liverpool then took the game to them, and clearly you'd expect... Um, Firmino to score um, when he's one-on-one, he doesn't and then you certainly wouldn't expect Salah to hit the post from eight yards on the rebound which would have made the game much more interesting so um, is, people have said to me this morning um, oh if anyone can turn over 3-0 then Liverpool can mm, I don't think that's the case if he'd scored on Wednesday night then the possibility of overturning the result I think would be realistic. However, um, you, I would expect Barcelona to score at Anfield, which would effectively put the tie out of Liverpool's reach. And I think as well, we, I've seen a lot of criticism um, this morning um, on social media um, and over the course of the last couple of days as well about um, Gary Lineker and Rio Ferdinand celebrating uh, Messi's free kick. And I think that's ridiculous because I think we should all be celebrating Rio Messi. 600 goals for Barcelona in 14 years. That's an incredible achievement. 
you know, and you, you can't even conceive of a career like his at one club and contributing so much to Barcelona and then 600 goals. I mean, where do you even start with that, Duncan? I, I think that free kick was about as close to perfection as I've seen on a football pitch. Duncan, um, there was one free kick that I would say was better, only one. Uh, Shinsuke Nakamura's for Celtic against Manchester United. I totally uh, agree with you on that, Johnny. I think that's absolutely correct. I, I haven't actually seen that free kick, so I'm going to have to watch it. You have to tell me what the context was. It's very, very similar, but it was more, it was even it more. Was it was further out. Further out was more in the top, top right hand corner. It, it, not, not in this, the, the physical context, what it meant oh, in I the see. game. No, well, it meant they won 1 0. Celtic beat Manchester United in the Champions League. It was a group stage game. But it wasn't well, a semi-final, um, Duncan. You're right, in, in the sense of it being, you know, um, important in the circumstances. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, the ultimately, yeah. as with yeah. most things in Scottish football, it's futile. <laughs> <laughs> it's the moment in the game. The, the, the technical expertise was sensational. The precision of the kick was sensational. The quality, amazing but also the moment in the game, because it, it, it has, I think, decided the tie. Um, and against top, top opposition, um, on a stage where he was expected to deliver, just, just brilliant. And, and I say that, and Shinsuke Nakamura, um, one of my favourite players, um, someone I got to know uh, reasonably well when I was working in Japan, um, through knowing a uh, coach he worked for, for at... Um, Yokohama F. Marinos, um, Sebastian Lazzaroni, um, at a time when Nakamura was quite a controversial figure in the Japanese game and wasn't really guaranteed his place in the team because um, people felt he didn't contribute sufficiently um, as he should do in the midfield for the Japanese team when he was clearly the, the great talent of their generation. So I will have to go and watch that free kick. But yeah, what Messi did was incredible. As for Jurgen Klopp, I think his uh, best performance last night was in the post-match interviews and in the, um, the post-match press conference. Um, I know he described, and on multiple occasions described, Liverpool's performance in Camp Nou as the best game we have away game we've played in the Champions League. Now, I think that is a ridiculous statement to make. Um, I think he made a number of huge tactical errors in that match, um, foremost of which was a decision to play Gini Wijnaldum as a number nine, a proper number nine. He wasn't playing as a false number nine. He was playing up in a, in a front three for the first time in his entire career against one of the best teams in Europe in the Champions League semi-final. I don't think Wijnaldum played badly. I don't think he discredited himself. But his positional errors, he was caught offside in a number of occasions, just illustrated that he was being asked to do something he hadn't done before and wasn't suited for. And even more bizarre when he has um, Jordan Shakiri on the bench, um, who for some reason he's decided not to play for months, but who had a very impressive uh, period of the season where he, he, he worked well in that attack and allowed... Mo Salah to play uh, as a false number nine and, and probably have his most productive period of the season for Mo Salah. I, I can understand why he wanted to keep Salah on the right wing because he was obviously trying to exploit Jordi Alba's um, propensity to attack and get Salah free or one-on-one -on -one into that space. 
but in which case move Sadio Mane into the central position and play Shakiri left or, or or change to a different shape. But starting when Alden was terrible. Also, um, he set up with a very narrow back four, um, unusually narrow for him, with a narrow midfield. And during that first half, when Barcelona got control of the ball, they had so much space to play into on the left and right wing. Um, and that's where most of their chances were coming from. And there wasn't any response to that um, from, for, from Klopp until the second half of the game. Then Liverpool are, are a, a goal down. Uh, Barcelona, as Ian says, play cleverly. They know their strength is on the counter-attack. They know they can score at any given moment. So they allow Liverpool to have a bit more of the ball. And Klopp overcommitted his players. I mean, um, you this week, Johnny, talked about uh, Ken Early's magnificent column where he was mentioning that Liverpool hadn't conceded the goal in the counter-attack in the Premier League all season, which is actually incorrect because they have conceded goals in the counter-attack. But in that game on Wednesday night, every time Liverpool got a set piece, a free kick or corner kick um, at Barcelona's end of the pitch, you thought Barcelona were going to take the ball and go straight up the other end and score. I mean, they, they looked like absolute novices defending the counter-attack. And OK, Barcelona, it's their strength to do that. But if Liverpool are supposed to be this incredible defensive unit who've, who've removed counter-attacking football as a force against them, and they go into a Champions League final, semi-final, sorry, and, and they commit themselves in that way against uh, at 1-0 down against a team who specialise in counter-attacking, that has got to go on the manager's back as a huge error. And I think he got away with another one right at the end because when they had that corner kick um, in the, the final minutes of injury time, he was waving Alison Becker up uh, to go and, and, and go into the box uh, and try and get a goal back. And OK, you could argue they needed to get an away goal at that point. But he's fortunate Becker uh, decided not to follow his instructions because if, if he had, they would definitely have been 4-0 down um, on the counter. And, and they were fortunate to get away with just three because Barcelona should have added two more in the counter-attack at the end of the game. So really, I think... The, the quality of performance from Liverpool has been exaggerated. Yes, they had some bad fortune in the sense that they didn't convert their chances. But if you're, you know, if you're um, lionising Mo Salah as one of the top players in the world and he has the opportunity to shoot a goal with no goalkeeper in it from six yards out um, in a Champions League semi-final and his team desperately needs a away goal and he can't hit the target, um, you probably need to ask questions about whether he's quite as good a player as people say he is and if the manager is making that series of bad decisions in a match like that you definitely need to ask questions about whether the manager is anywhere near as good a manager as people are describing him as. So given the way the ties are poised at the moment guys, uh, Spurs obviously 1-0 down having to go to Amsterdam uh, to try and reverse that tie and Barcelona now three goals up, you'd have to fancy that the purest final uh, that most neutrals would probably have wanted to see is the one most likely, which is Ajax against um, Barcelona. How likely do you think that is now? And if it does happen, how much of a spectacle is that going to be? I'm not sure that um, the Tottenham versus Ajax tie is, is quite as straightforward as, as Ajax going through now. Um, I think the return of Hyman Son uh, to the... Tottenham team for the second leg in the Amsterdam Arena uh, could be significant and crucial because he gives um, an extra dimension to the way that Tottenham play. 
it was almost quite sad to see um, uh, 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 Fernando Llorente um, basically looking for long balls and being slow and <clears throat> and also without uh, any kind of decent first touch um, being knocked into him um, at the, the, as Duncan calls it, the naming rights stadium uh, in the first leg. And I think Son has the pace and the intelligence to hurt Ajax. Um, I think it's also um, the case that um, Pochettino will not make the same um, ridiculous tactical error of playing 3-5-2 from the start of the game. Um, Spurs, it's it's weird with Pochettino because he is someone who you would imagine is intelligent enough to learn from his own mistakes. However, um, every time he's played 3-5-2 this season, um, his team have struggled. Whereas every time they play 4-4-2, then they actually have, in most games, won and defended very well. So it was just a bit weird that he um, he decided to experiment, especially when Alderweireld and Vertonghen are probably the best centre-half pairing in the world right now, uh, in terms of, and I say that as a pair, not as individual players. So I find it weird um, that Pochettino um, decided to do what he did, he won't make the same mistake, I'm sure, in the Amsterdam Arena. And therefore, at 1-0 to Ajax, even with that away goal, I think Spurs score. And everything is open um, for debate in terms of what the final might be. Um, I don't disagree with you, John. I think Barcelona now have done their job and will do it again at Anfield. So I think it'll be Barcelona versus one of rather than um, you know, Barcelona absolutely going to be facing uh, Johan Cruyff's first club uh, rather than his second one. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Ian that um, there's no way that the Tottenham Ajax tie is dead yet. Um, I'll just say I hope um, that Ajax goes through because I think um, when we did the predictions and you told us that Liverpool would be comfortably in the final, Johnny, I think I remember predicting that it would be an Ajax-Barcelona final. You did, right? you did, you did. I will hold my hands up and say oh. I thought it would be Barcelona-Juventus. So I'm, I'm going to mea culpa. Castles is king when it comes to predictions. Finally! The only one who doesn't advise us what to, what to bet on, you just can imagine the fork things made. Don't say he's not got his ducks in a row. Right, we are going to move on now to the quickfire round, the legendary quickfire round. And today we're going to do something slightly different. I am going to ask the guys to put their mindsets into a position where they are a certain player's agent and give the advice that they would give to that player to you, the transfer window listeners. So, first of all, Duncan, you are now the agent of Mr. Paul Pogba. What do you tell him? Um, I think if I was the agent of Paul Pogba, I would sit him down and ask him whether he wants where he wants his career to be, what he wants to achieve in his career. Um, does he want to be the best player in the world or at least the very best footballer he can be with his prodigious talents because we know what his capabilities are um, technically and physically they're superb um, what's lacking in his game is attitude and application um, behaviour um, taking responsibility in his shoulders on a consistent basis if he wants to be the best player in the world as opposed to just be recognised in social media as being a great player and getting plaudits for individual bits of skill, then he, we need to work on a strategy in terms of where is the best place for him to go. Um, 
how does he achieve that? A lot of it's down to, obviously, individual um, application. I think there would be a very big question to be asked is whether Manchester United has a place to do it. And I think it's understandable if Mino Raiola, uh, his current agent and Pogba are asking those questions of Manchester United and saying, um, is this club organisation, is, is the quality of squad, is the manager going to be good enough uh, to win a Premier League title um, and win the Champions League? And if not, then I'm going to have to consider my position here. If he could get assurance from Manchester United that they were going to get these things right, then it's not a bad place to be at all. And it's a great platform to achieve that in the sense that he could lead this team um, out of the wilderness and back into proper competition for the biggest trophies in, in football. Because he is the biggest name and he is the most talented outfield player they have. Um, but you need those assurances. But probably the conversation would be, actually, I just want fame. I just want to be a club where I can I can uh, ride along and let others um, take the weight and, uh, and get paid more. Um, you might have difficulty getting them to explicitly admit that, but that's probably what the, the result of the conversation would be. In which case, you'd be looking to move to Real Madrid, Juventus, um, whoever you could rope in um, with a belief in that uh, potential to put them in their team and, and give them that bigger salary. What cut are you taking, Duncan? Is it 5%, 10%, 14%? How much money are you taking from this? What? How big a slice to use the real <laughs> Yeah, well, look, with, with advice of that quality, it would have to be at least 20%. <laughs> Mr. Castles doesn't come cheap. As, uh... <laughs> well, as no one has said ever. <laughs> Un- unlike, unlike budgies. Right. It's your turn, Ian. And you're going to be the agent for Mr. Eden Hazard. So, um, interestingly, just as a, a moot point, Eden Hazard doesn't have an agent as such. He has a sort of um, committee of advisors, and they include lawyers and accountants. His dad is actually his, the main influence in his um, career regarding um, what he does next, etc., etc. So I would never um, dare to uh, take over a father's role uh, as far as Hazard's concerned. But at age 27... He has, I think, done everything he can at Chelsea. Um, I think uh, he doesn't owe Chelsea anything in terms of loyalty or um, any more years there. Uh, He's someone who clearly has the ability and has proven himself to have the ability to um, play at the very highest level. Um, He's shown that um, in a struggling Chelsea team in the last couple of years. He's shown it in a, in a very good Belgium team as well in terms of his World Cup performances uh, as well as um, European Championships as well. So I would tell Aiden Hazard run far, run fast and do it in the direction of Madrid uh, and sign for Los Marengues and become the superstar player that you are cut out to be um, for Real Madrid and be part of that rebuilding process that Zidane has been put in charge of, that we spoke about already in uh, this week's Transfer Podcast uh, editions. Um, Be part of that, um, because something big is going to happen at Real Madrid, and it's going to be potentially changing 
the, the face of football in the same way that Perez's first term as president in the 2000s, or the noughties as they're called, um, happened when he signed one Galactico per summer. I think they'll be signing three Galacticos this summer and then they will follow that up next summer as well. And he could be one of the players who is part of a team which dominates both Champions League and La Liga in the next three to four years. So um, my advice to Aidan and to his dad would be... Um, Aidan Hazard, is he from Ireland? Go to the Garden of and find, find your Garden of Eden. <coughs> <laughs> You know that the pronunciation in Belgium is Aiden. You'd, you'd realise that, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, well, it is. Sorry. Anyway, well, I was uh, just thinking with that pronunciation, Ian, you know, if Jack Charlton was still the Ireland manager, it wouldn't be long before he was in that squad. <laughs> no, just like McGeady. <laughs> to do what? To be ball boy. <laughs> <laughs> Younger listeners will not remember, um, but uh, it's safe to say that the Ireland of Jack Charlton was uh, agricultural. Right, Duncan. Your next client, you will be meeting him in the clubhouse. It is, of course, <laughs> none other than Mr. Gareth Bale. Do you have your seven iron in hand? <laughs> no, but I'm sure he will. <laughs> Look, I think with Gareth Bale, we kind of know um, where he is. He's going to be 30 this summer. He's on uh, a hugely lucrative contract in Madrid. He enjoys living in Spain. Um, he plays half a season. Uh, every season spends, as you allude to, much of his time on the golf course. It seems to be far more enthralled by playing golf than he is by playing football. Again, a player with amazing talent when he focuses. Last season's Champions League final being you know, a fantastic example of that. But what's he done since? Um, so I think you know what he wants. He wants to continue to be paid well um, to not play much football. Um, I don't see that changing. Um, therefore, your job is to uh, find alternative clubs to move to that would give them more years of contract on the same or more money, which is probably going to involve leaving European football um, and seeing whether he would be um, amenable to moving to the countries that are offering him that cash. Um, and if not, then just riding out the Real Madrid contract to the end uh, and and then cashing in uh, to one of those countries at the end of his career um, when he can take uh, the transfer fee and uh, or the, what would have been the transfer fee and add it on as a signing on fee. So um, uh, and then start uh, planning with him which golf course uh, he's going to buy um, to to uh, spend his retirement at. Duncan, I'm disappointed because the question was how would you advise him, not what you think is going to happen. Sure, you would advise him to shake himself up. He's not, you know, he's not too old to be playing football. He should be going to a club where he's going to play regular football and challenge for trophies. I just don't think that would work. I think uh, that's what I'm saying. I think we see how Gareth Bale is. He's had that option presented to him on multiple occasions, um, and he's declined to take that option up. I, I just don't. I think you could advise him that, and uh, and the response would be, I don't want to do that. And as a, you know, if you're an agent, your your role. With a player of that age, isn't to um, convince them, I think, to, to change their mindset and change the way they're acting on the football field. It's to, uh, to follow their interests and maximise their revenue and, um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, get, 
get them the best deal properly proper uh, possible um, to allow them to continue their life onwards. And we should also remember as well that um, agents' commission fees are paid at 6% of the net salary of their player per year. So if you are an agent, then 6% of Gareth Bale's salary per annum at Real Madrid is, is probably going to you know, buy you quite nice holidays or yachts. I'd, I'd, love to be proved, I'd love to be proved wrong. I'd love to see Bale I, at the top of his game, the Bale of the Champions League final, back at a club um, who were competing and who made him a centrepiece of their team um, and, and, and see that for the last you know, two, three years of his, uh, his active career. But I just I don't see it happening, unfortunately. I, as I say, I'd love, to, I'd love him to prove me wrong. Ian, your final client is a man who looked like he had the world at his feet. The choice between two of the biggest clubs in the world, if not the two biggest clubs in the world. But slowly but surely, that fortune has ebbed away. Now, he still has a team in the semi-final of the Champions League, and he's still got an opportunity to get the biggest prize of them all. But perhaps a more difficult summer for your client, Maurizio Pochettino. Indeed, um... I'm reminded of uh, an advert um, for a very well-known <clears throat> brand of car, um, which was around, I can't even remember which decade, Johnny, because that's how old I am. Um, but uh, a man um, who looked not unlike Mercy Pochettino sort of wanders out of the uh, Monte Carlo casino and uh, walks up a hill. And the, um, the dialogue at the, over the top of his, this is a man who put everything on black and it came up red. And um, that sort of reminds me of Pochettino's situation right now. He, you're right, he had the choice of Manchester United or Real Madrid literally in the palm of his hand not more than three months yeah. ago. And since then, um, circumstances have <sighs> collided um, inconveniently for him to um, see that neither of those jobs is available to him. And he's in a situation now where... Um, his club, where he, you know, has been made or lionised as some kind of legend, despite not winning a trophy, um, have moved to a new stadium, which has burdened him with debt, and as we've discussed several times, has also um, meant that the transfer policy of the club will be uh, gravely affected in terms of the amount of money that they're prepared to spend. They have a wage, effectively, a wage cap, a wage ceiling at the club, which means they really can't sign players of the highest order in order to um, make progress on the, on the field of play, despite their wonderfully appointed field of play that they have built at the cost of £1.2 billion. Pounds. And um, I think Pochettino is making the best of, his, of what is a bad situation. Um, you know, he's, he's pretending to be happy, but at the same time desperate, I think, to you know, effectively expand his wings and fly. Now, we spoke earlier in the podcast about the situation at PSG and uh, Big Tam Tuchel and what might happen with him. Now, <laughs> I, I, I reckon that if PSG comes up, Pochettino will be one of the first names uh, in terms of candidates for them. I think that Jose Mourinho will be another one, and we know that he's turned down PSG on a few occasions. So um, I would say that he's, he's busted his flush just yet. I think that would be far too premature. Um, but a move to France, maybe not Monte Carlo, um, may well be uh, uh, on the cards for him come this summer. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, 
it's time for me to shuffle off this transfer window coil because this is my final outing as presenter. It's been emotional. It's been fabulous. I'd like to thank Mr. Duncan Castles and Mr. Ian McGarry for their fabulous insight over the last couple of years. You've also it's prepared been... this, Johnny, haven't you? Because it's, sound... it's, sound... it... it's sounding just like an Oscar speech. It's highly prepared. <laughs> <laughs> highly prepared off my cuff. But yes, it's off something, that's for sure. Thank you, gentlemen, for your uh, company over these many, many hours we've spent together. And thank you to the listeners for their kind interactions on social media. Well, most of the time. Uh, and uh, I am now off to run Football Scotland, which is a, a website covering Scottish football. So I am no longer the transfer windows anchor. Well, Johnny, thank you very much for the uh, time you've spent and, and put up with us. It has been a pleasure and a privilege. And we will certainly miss you. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. The fact that you have become the keeper of wildfowl um, <laughs> over the last few weeks and months has been, you know, a, a revelation that I don't think any of us could have expected. So, um, you know, we hope to welcome you back in um, maybe some guest presentation uh, sort of uh, moments in, in the future. And we hope that it won't be the last time that we hear those dulcet tones of Edinburgh uh, on the Transfer Podcast. Uh, it's a real shame we're losing you and best of luck with your ventures. And I think we should get Ian to be your agent. Can we do an Ian McGarry's advice to Johnny McFarlane um, if he was his agent and taking a, a commission of that uh, very chunky salary you're getting at football? <laughs> 6%. I mean, listen, you'd probably be like a Mars bar. <laughs> I don't like Mars bars. Can I have something else, please? Maybe a Milky Way. On that note, with Ian and his Milky Ways, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, the boys will be back on Monday to answer all your pod... To... What's it? To... I think you should leave it in like this. <laughs> <laughs> your farewell. To... This is just my... This is what... Yeah. Broadcast it. <laughs> This is just the standard. To fulfil all your podcast needs. Read the script, Johnny. Yes, no, I don't have a script in front of me. But to continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian is at Garbo SG. And Duncan is, of course, at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening.